one of my favorite passages because there's something about the setting that just speaks to me. There's something about the place, something about the tone, something about the timing. And we've been for a few weeks talking about how we learn from Scripture what God is like in encounters with individuals. And we've started with these four stories from the life of Jesus about how he encounters people. And often there's other people around, but he kind of zeroes in on this this one person. And this is another one of those conversations. It's kind of a one-to-one conversation, but you see there were plenty of other people that could have been involved, but Jesus waited and appeared to the one. And for a reason, we don't know the full reason, but we'll kind of talk about that today. But in this story, we see what Jesus says to grief and to hopelessness. Because Jesus brings hope to those who have no hope. And so as we start, we're going to take some time and just think about what hope means and what happens when hope is lost. There's a story I've told a number of times before, but this morning I want to give kind of a different emphasis to it. Because this week... Um, I was in John 20 in this passage and there was just something that wasn't it wasn't connecting Thursdays are my normal study day and so I was doing some study in the office and um, y'all I've got I've got a problem that I've dealt with my whole life Um, it's called ADD and I cannot study consistently in patterns and I, I I just struggle and Thursday, I was just staring and staring and staring, and it just, I needed to get away. I needed to separate. And I recognized that, for me, there are these places that just feel sacred, that, that feel clearer. My mind works better. It's always outside. Usually, there's, there's water involved of some type, and so go to a local park, go sit by, go sit by the water, open my Bible. I don't need my computer at that point. I don't need a bunch of notes and commentaries, but I found myself staring at computer and commentaries and all my normal sermon study pattern, and I just said, I got it. God, I got to get away. I sat outside, and I looked through John 20, and I just read it, and I realized there is such, for me, and maybe for you, there's such a power in place sometimes. And a power in the way God, by his spirit, builds connections in our minds between experiences with him in particular places. And so I'm sitting at Hag Mill, sitting on a bench in the, you know, go a couple miles into the trail where it's nice and quiet, a couple people randomly walking by or jogging by, and it's just me looking out over the lake with the scriptures, thinking about what is it about me that, that is just drawn towards I hear God's voice more clearly sitting by the water. Is there, is there something about me? I, I mean, I can speak, I can speak back that, that so many, so many memories I have of my life where God has moved have been waterside. And I think back, is there some place it started? Is there, is there some reason that that connection was just built in my mind? Was it, is it something that, a scriptural story, or is it a personal event? And this, and it's a story that I've told you before that I thought about. Um, 
right after I graduated college, Jess, my wife, was my fiance at the time. Um, she stayed at college for a year after me. We went to Union University in Jackson, Tennessee. And in February of her senior year, I was living in South Carolina in seminary. And as I was in seminary and, and she was a senior in college, a tornado came and completely destroyed the, the dorms of, that she lived in, uh, multiple of the dorm complexes around the campus. Um, the, the first responders show up, and, um, and we were told afterwards that um, as the first responders set up their stations, um, they got on, uh, on their, uh, the megaphone, and one of the people that was put in charge of the site told the first responders, prepare for 100 kids to die today. That's what, they, that's what they told the first responders. There's 1,000 students living in these buildings that have collapsed. Prepare for 100 of them to be dead. Just be prepared. And none were. Every single student made it out alive. Some in the hospital for, for months and months afterwards. Lots of surgeries. Lots of difficulty. Lots of trauma. And yet lots of rescue. And lots of God's miraculous rescue of, of people. So my story was interesting. I was in a night class in South Carolina and um, I received a call from Jess, and she left me a voicemail um, during my class. And she said, um, she said, hey, we just wanted you to know we're going into, we're sheltering. There's a tornado coming. It happens in West Tennessee all the time. I grew up there. I'd been through a hundred of these. And that's not an exaggeration. And so we just kind of knew, like, okay, yeah, this is happening again, Wh whatever. And then I get, then I try to call her back in my break, and I don't get her. And then, as as I'm in class again, she calls and leaves another voicemail, and I assume she's just telling me we're we're out, it's good. So I come out. The class ends. It's like nine o'clock, and uh, I'm eight and a half hours away, Columbia, South Carolina, Jackson, Tennessee. And this is the voicemail. No joke. She doesn't believe me. I've told this story before. I will take this to my grave. This is what the voicemail says. Tim, exasperated, breathing heavy. Tim, it hit us. Everything's gone. There's blood everywhere. I got to go. It took hours to hear from her again. Hours. I mean, I, I called and I called and I called. I, so my cell phone, I had just graduated from this campus. I knew so many people on campus. I went to my cell phone and I started calling down everybody I knew that lived on campus. And I got to my friend Stephen, who by the way is an S. I went in alphabetical order. And Stephen was the first person that lived on campus that answered his phone. Because I, you know, I was just frantic. I wasn't thinking, hey, if one person doesn't have service, probably everybody on campus doesn't have service. I get to Stephen and Stephen's like, dude, I have no idea what's going on. I was off campus tonight. I can't get a hold of anybody either. I'm like, Stephen, shut up. I hung up on him, and it was zero help. I called Jess's dad, and Jess's dad tells me that, um, that he hasn't heard either, that several people have heard from, from different people in, in the, uh, there are several people from her church that were at the same school, and she's like, yeah, Jacob's okay, and, you know, this person's okay, this person's okay, but we're not really sure what's going on with Jess. Like, okay, great. So then I tell my dad and I tell Jess's dad, well, I'm just going to drive there. And they were like, storm, tornadoes move from west to east 
and that means you're going from east to west, and you're going to drive right through that tornado, so let's not do that at 3 o'clock in the morning. Let's just wait. So I'm sitting there in Columbia, South Carolina, and in the middle of the night, I go, and it's the first time I'd ever gone there, because I didn't live on campus. I lived about two miles from campus, but at Columbia um, International University, they have what they call the prayer towers. And I was like, I just, I need Jesus. I need hope. Everything's dark. Everything's hopeless. I don't know what's going on. It's my fiance, and it's also like all of my friends. And it's so much of what I knew, and so much of like, I should be there to help, and I'm not. And this powerlessness, this complete incapacity. And so I go up to these prayer towers, and that they look out over the lake, and it is one of the clearest points in my memory where looking out that window on my knees, scripture open, but not reading, not saying anything, just waiting for the Lord, looking out over this lake on campus, God met me. And there was a sacred place, and there was a hope that didn't make sense, and there was something that just was an encounter where I felt like I could actually go down out of the tower, go back to my house, and just rest and figure it out the next day. Just so you'll know, Jess is alive. She's good. Um, she swears that's not what she said on the voicemail, but whatever. I know the truth. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, you know, God moved that day in, I mean, hundreds of students that were living there, and one that was living eight and a half hours away. And I look back, and so I was sitting there with John 20 on Thursday, looking out over the water, and I'm like, I think that was the first time. I think that was the first time that I remember Jesus meeting me through his scripture, through the presence of the Holy Spirit, looking out over a lake. And it's created this, when hope is gone, there is a sacred place, a sacred space that I go to, and I see and I hear Jesus and I feel him again. So there's something about this story. Maybe it's because it happens outside. Maybe it's because there's a garden and a gardener involved. There's not really a gardener involved. There, she thinks there's a gardener involved. But there's something about this that feels so peaceful. It feels like this is a sacred place where hope is found. We hear all these studies. We see lots of people talk about um, the battle for hope in our day, the problem of depression and mental illness, the problem of people that have experienced trauma. I read one article this week about trauma being the mission field of the 21st century. I read another article about how Gen Z is the most unhappy generation in human history. I don't know how you can determine that, but that's what they say. But we know there's problems. We know people are depressed. We know people are fighting for hope. We know people don't know what to do with their grief all around us. And that sets the table for us this morning to come into this place where one of Jesus' faithful followers is completely crushed with hopelessness. And in a trauma that creates a state of confusion, and she's grasping for hope in the dark, and Jesus finally finds her. 
So John 20 is where we're going to be. We're going to unpack this passage. We're basically looking at 18 verses of John 20. Um, We'll go and we'll see it in stages. We'll see the stage of darkness when hope is not found. The stage of confusion when hope doesn't make sense and the world doesn't make sense. And then light when hope breaks in and transforms. So we'll pick up the story in John 20 and I'll make a few comments along the way. John 20, verse 1. The scriptures are not on the screen. I really want you to, to have the scriptures in front of you, so I hope you'll, you'll bring your, your Bibles with you. Um, if not, you, you can look it up on your phone. I do prefer a paper version, but I really want that to be our discipline here. We'll occasionally put verses on the screen, but I really want you to have your own copy of the scriptures in front of you. John 20, starting in verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. And saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran, went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple. They were going toward the tomb. Both of them, by the way, the other disciple is John, the author of this passage. Uh, Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. If you've been around for a while, you know I love that passage. That's not what we're about, that's not what we're talking about today, but John's just little flex on Peter there for 2,000 years of church history. I'm faster than Peter, and everyone in church history has to know this. That's what John did, verse, verse, five, verse 4 there. John is faster than Peter. Now we all know it, 2,000 years later. Verse 5, stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there. He did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw, and he believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. So here it is. Mary's in the dark here. While it was still dark, she she goes to the tomb early. Uh, John, if you read the book of John, just, just read it. It's beautiful. And John loves to talk about light and darkness. And so, John, a detail of darkness is not inconsequential in the way he's telling the story. There is both a literal darkness and a spiritual darkness in play in this narrative. Where Mary is hopeless as she goes to the tomb in the dark. Who is Mary? A lot has been said. It's interesting, Mary is probably more popular to be talked about now in our generation than any previous time in church history, because people like to, be, like to stir up controversy about Mary Magdalene and like to imagine or discredit the scriptures by imagining, the, the, imagining these scenarios with Mary Magdalene. And so anyone that you have seen say that, well, Jesus was, was married or Jesus has a, had a girlfriend, it's always Mary Magdalene that they pick. And people try to make a big deal out of this. Why? Well, what we'll see here is there is something significant about Mary Magdalene. What we're about to see today is she was the first person to see the risen Jesus. And so there's something about about Jesus and Mary Magdalene that just fascinates people, and people take it in weird, unhelpful directions. There's no romantic relationship here. There's not, she's, he's not Jesus' wife. There was, about 10 years ago, this document that was produced that was found, but actually produced, that claimed to be the gospel of Jesus' wife. It was complete phony, one of the biggest, one of the craziest stories you will ever hear. 
the gospel of Jesus' wife. Google it. Look up the book Veritas. It's the story of that false papyrus that was generated and the twists and turns in that story. Absolute insanity. The lengths people would, would go to, to to make money, number one, to prove their own preconceived notions about Scripture and to just um, create doubt in people's minds about who Jesus was and who Mary Magdalene was. We have no reason to think that there was anything romantically unique about Mary Magdalene's relationship with Jesus. There's absolutely no reason to think that. What we have reason to think is that Mary Magdalene was a faithful follower. Um, Earlier, uh, she is mentioned in Luke that uh, she's mentioned in in the context of a group of women that followed Jesus out of their own means. In fact, Mary was one of a number of women listed in Luke 8 who provided for Jesus and the disciples out of their own means. In some way, some depictions of Mary see her as this uh, a poor woman or a prostitute or something like that. There's, there's no reason in Scripture to, to see that. Rather, the reason we have is that she actually helped fund Jesus and the disciples in their ministry. She provided for them out of her own funds that she independently had. Um, what we do know, biographical, is that she was um, rescued from seven demons. Jesus caused seven demons to come out of Mary Magdalene. Multiple Gospels mention that detail. So that's why I say this is a woman that knew trauma, understood trauma. Now, in some ways, she had some level of, of wealth or means, it seems, either before or after, both. Um, but she was, for a stage of her life, possessed by seven demons. And what is the state of her heart and her hope in that moment? Uh, Magdalene um, just means that she's from Magdala, most, most likely. Migdal is a, it's a city on the coast of, of um, the Sea of Galilee there. So there's probably nothing really significant about that, except for the fact that there were a lot of Marys going around in the New Testament, and it was an identifying factor. There's Mary, the mother of Jesus, and there's Mary of Migdal, Mary Magdalene. That's what we know about her. One of the things we have to talk about is if you read the scriptures and if you are one of those people that has friends, family members, acquaintances that like to pick apart the scriptures and show you inconsistencies and disagreement between the scriptures, this very appearance is one of the big ones that can get used against us and against the Bible. So before we talk about the personal interaction here, we got to talk about that context here. Because here's, here's the problem. In um, all four Gospels tell the story of somebody going to the tomb and finding it empty. A, me, a, a group of women that were preparing to, um, to treat his body with spices or whatever. But all four Gospels listed a little bit differently. And that's a problem for some people. So I'm just going to mention it. And you can, you can write down these verses if you want. But in Matthew 28, 1... Matthew says that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary go. Mark 16.1 says Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome, Salome, or Salome, go. Three women. Uh, Luke 24.10 says Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Joanna, and other women. John 20 only mentions Mary Magdalene. Now, what's, what's interesting here is you have four different biographies of Jesus. They're giving four different versions of events. And it's okay to say four different versions of events. 
But the question when the Gospels disagree is, are they actually disagreeing in the sense that they are um, in contrast with each other? Or are they complementary of each other and telling the same story from different angles? Um, John hones in on Mary, one person in t- he is intentionally telling the story of one woman's interaction with Jesus. He doesn't negate the fact that other women may have come, but definitely in that appearance, it's only Mary that is there. And actually, the other when you read the four gospel accounts together, if you list off the names, it sounds a little confusing. It sounds a little, little suspicious, where it's like one says two, One says three, one says three plus an unidentified number of others, and one says one. And the answer is, where they all agree, is Mary Magdalene was there. And what's interesting is John is not the only one that says, actually three of the four say, Mary Magdalene was the first to see Jesus, that Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene that day. But none of them say that Jesus appeared to any of the other women. And so there's a both and of there were other women involved, but at 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 least one point, and maybe multiple points, Mary Magdalene was there by herself. And that's when she saw Jesus. And so, most likely what happened is that Mary Magdalene was there with other women for a time, and they got separated. Maybe the other women went back, maybe Mary stayed. It seems, from John's story, that Mary runs back to Peter and John, and then comes back after that. She tells Peter and John, somebody's taken the body, And then she comes back and sees Jesus after that. I just want you to see that these are complementary accounts that can be synchronized together to where we can see that Mary Magdalene is in all four accounts. She was there. She saw Jesus. At a certain point, some other women were there. At another point, they were. At a certain point, Peter and John show up, and then they leave. And Jesus doesn't appear to Peter and John. Jesus appears to Mary. And what's interesting, one of the most fascinating parts about all of this is if you think in the first century mindset, if Jesus had appeared to Peter and John that day, it would have been immediately admissible in court as a testimony. And Mary's perspective, Mary's single eyewitness account as a woman meant absolutely nothing in a court of law. It's a really interesting detail. Why did Jesus choose one woman to be the very first, very first appearance? We know shortly after that, as we talked about last week, he appeared to to 10 disciples at a time, and then he appeared to Thomas later, so he values all of his disciples. But there's something important here about Mary, and that's what we're trying to find out. Mary, who had been released of seven demons. Mary, who was eager to find out what had happened. Mary was walking in darkness. Now, You've probably heard it said, it's better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. We, we can debate that sort of concept, but I want you to think about the question of hope and hopelessness and the fact that people are saying that we live in such a hopeless or depressed um, generation and, and season of time. I want you to think, what, what happens when somebody is at a point of hopelessness and is radically rescued and all of a sudden has every reason in the world to hope only to have it shattered again. I'll tell you, that hurts worse. And we, 
two weeks ago, we looked at the woman with the issue of blood, 12 years of hopelessness. But here's the issue with the woman uh, with the issue of blood versus Mary Magdalene. The woman with the issue of blood, when she encounters Jesus there on the road, she had, had very little reason for hope for a dozen years. Completely broken. Not able to be in, in worship, not able to be in community, not able to be surrounded by friends and family. Nobody could touch her, have any physical contact with her. Uh, Mary had been there and then had been rescued and then was crushed again. Because the man that gave her hope through the power of God and called the seven demons to get out of her, the man who radically transformed her life, all of a sudden, now he's gone. And I would argue that for Mary, this state of despair and hopelessness is worse than where she was before. Because now, in the darkness, she remembers what it was like to bask in the light and in the presence of the Messiah and now she's gone, and, and, and now he's gone, and she doesn't get it, and she doesn't understand. And John says it about himself. John says, this is the crazy thing about John in verse 9, in, or in verse 8. In verse 8, John believes that Jesus is risen from the dead. And in verse 9, John doesn't understand that that's what the scripture said would happen. John believes it before he understands it. John walks into the, into the tomb and believes, yeah, he was he was raised from the dead. He's alive. Peter doesn't seem to. Mary doesn't seem to. So let's keep, keep reading, and we'll see why, why I say that. So Mary is in darkness without hope. And now she moves into confusion. Peter and John run to the tomb. They see no Jesus, and they leave. But they see the cloth there. And then the, the disciples go back to their homes in verse 10. Verse 11. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. What's interesting is it seems like she didn't before. It seems like when she was there in the dark, she, she didn't go. It, it, one of the other gospel accounts show that some of the women encountered an angel when they saw the tomb rolled away, but it, it doesn't seem that Mary was a part of that interaction seems that she has a different, separate interaction later. It seems like she sees the tomb empty, she runs back to tell Peter and John, and then it seems like she returns in verse 11. Like she followed slowly behind Peter and John. They go in, they don't see Jesus, they just see the claws and they leave. In verse 11, she's standing outside the tomb and she wept and then she goes to look in. And in verse 12, she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. One at the head, one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. So it's clear, even after the angelic messengers show up, she, she doesn't really understand or really believe that what she has just witnessed is evidence of the resurrection. 
John, he walks in and he believes and he leaves. But Mary is still weeping in her grief. She is still living in despair, in, in trauma. In, and, and you think about this, if you've ever been in a traumatic situation, that sort of paralysis makes sense. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to respond. I, I, don't, I don't know what the right next step is. So she stays waiting for something to do. She sees the angels, and it, it looks like she recognizes that they're angels. But the angels, now, what's the role of the angels in the, in the New Testament, in all of Scripture? Angels are messengers. The word for angel means messenger. What message did the angels give Mary Magdalene? Zero. They didn't tell her anything. They asked her a question. They didn't tell her, he is not here, he is risen. That's what, that's what the other gospel says about this group of women outside the tomb earlier. But <clears throat> in this situation, they don't deliver a message to Mary in person there. And so interesting, so interesting to think about the role of the angels as messengers. They're there to establish a witness. God's presence is here, and God's favor is here, and God has sent his messengers here to witness the resurrection, but they don't have to say anything to Mary. Why? Because Jesus is there, and she doesn't even know it. So she, it, it, get the visual. Peter and James run. Mary is following. Maybe she's running. Maybe she's cautious. Maybe she's just thinking, asking the questions, what, what could have happened? Where could she be? Maybe she's wandering around the garden looking for maybe somewhere that they've, they've moved Jesus' body. And then Peter and, and John, they leave, and Mary is weeping outside as they, as they leave. And then she finally enters in, and she looks in, and she sees what they saw plus two angels that they didn't see. And then she goes and she engages with the angels. They ask her a question, and then she turns. And all of a sudden, there's a man behind her. When did that man get there? We, we don't know. We're not told that story. We're, we're not told whether he was there the whole time and she just ignored him. But it seems like he just appears because, you know, that's what Jesus does in this stage. Last week, we talked about the resurrected Jesus walking through a locked door twice in eight days. And Jesus, this is what he's doing. It's a really interesting period to think about because multiple times he's not recognized. This isn't the only time that somebody sees the resurrected Jesus and doesn't know who he is. On the side of the Sea of Galilee, the, the disciples, it's not just distance, they don't recognize him. It doesn't say they couldn't tell who it was, it says they saw him and didn't recognize him. On the road to Emmaus, two disciples are walking with Jesus for eight miles, and they don't recognize him. And so there's something spiritual about this, where they are unable to recognize Jesus, even though he's in human form, and yet all of them are like, duh, how didn't we, how didn't we know that that was Jesus? There's something really, really interesting about the way the Spirit of God blinds our eyes and, and then unveils our eyes all in one. That, that's what the resurrection of Jesus is, is really showing us, is that we need the Spirit to really see and understand who Jesus is. But she's still in that point, in that stage of traumatic confusion, where the evidence in front of her doesn't make sense. And brothers and sisters, we have to be prepared for this stage where 
how many times have one of us seen Jesus, experienced Jesus, and, and, and we're so in love with Jesus, we want to tell somebody else, and they look at us and they're like, that just doesn't make sense. And you're like, sure it does. He changed my life. Like, I'm not crazy. This is real. Jesus is real. He changed my life. He, he worked this miracle in my life. I used to be this way. Now I'm radically transformed. He's real. You've got to believe me. It makes so much sense in my head. Why doesn't it make sense in your head? Every one of us have had that interaction with somebody. Every one of us have said, it's so clear. It's so beautiful. It's so real to believe the gospel, believe that Jesus died on the cross and he died for me and he rose again so that I could have new life. I'm radically transformed. Would you please, please listen and see how you can be radically transformed? But she, as many around us, are still in that place where the hope of the risen Savior doesn't yet make sense because she still needs the presence of God and she needs a real radical encounter. And so much of our role in evangelism, in, in, in ministry, in disciple making, is to be there, to say the words that do make sense, to engage in the conversations, to love like Jesus loved, and continue to push that person towards the context to where Jesus shows up and lights that fire. But we can't. That's the most frustrating thing about ministry, evangelism, discipleship. We can't make that last move of transformation. We can't force somebody into transformation. It's them and the Spirit of God. And we can create all sorts of context, and we can give all sorts of encouragement. We can give the best arguments we can give. We can love as well as we can possibly love, but we can't change that heart. Only the Spirit of God can. So there's a lesson for us to be patient with those that are still living in their trauma, their despair, their hopelessness. They'll keep loving, they'll keep talking, they'll keep saying the words that make sense even when they don't make sense to them because what we're doing is we're creating the context for God to do the work because it is ultimately going to be their salvation where they receive the, the, the presence of the Spirit. They believe and they are transformed in a moment. And we're just, we're, we're doing the groundwork. We're preparing the soil. And God gives the growth, the growth. Another tidbit here that's really interesting. I mean, she, she says, just tell me where he is. I'll, I'll go take care of the rest. She is so confident that Jesus is not risen. She's in her head making arrangements to bury him again. That, that's how far off she is from believing in the resurrection in that moment. But guys, you ask, well, how do we do that? How do we get people out of hopelessness to the moment of salvation, to real conviction, to real truth? Well, let's look at the story. What does it take for Mary? What does that radical transformation look like? Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. In our ministry, in our evangelism, we can use as many words as we want. But one word of Jesus can bring a transformation that all of our really intelligent arguments, that all of our r really exciting outreach events, 
all of our beautiful service to the community and to people, that's just preparing the soil for the heart to be radically transformed when suddenly Jesus meets the heart. One word, Mary. She turned and said to him, in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. What is John doing in telling the story that way in verse 16? He is showing there's a, there's a friendship, there's a familiarity, there's a deep love. It's not romantic. It, it, they're, they're not dating. That's not, we don't have to go weird on all of that stuff. It's just Jesus loves her and she loves Jesus. And it's even evidence that they have not a, a, a romantic relationship, but a deep familial relationship. But he, she calls him teacher. Teacher is the term. Now, it's a, it's a warm term, but it, there's still a distance there. And so they care deeply about each other. He loves her as a daughter, and she loves him as her rescuer, as her redemption as her only hope in this life. And Jesus says, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. So Jesus establishes this personal connection with Mary over who knows how many years. We don't know at what point. We see the disciples, the, the guys being called. We don't see Mary being called. Mary just shows up one day, and she shows up financially supporting the ministry of Jesus, and she shows up having had seven demons cast out of her. And then she's just there, and she's there a lot. And so we know that she's faithful. We know that she's involved, and we know that she's there at the tomb, and we know that she is the one she is the one that Jesus chooses to be the first person, the, the first Christian, some might say, the first person to see and believe that Jesus is resurrected and that now following him is not just about following a rabboni, a teacher. Following him is about following Lord and Savior. In verse 29 we read last week, Verse 29, Jesus says to Thomas, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Here's the interesting thing about John 20 as a whole chapter. We have multiple people that Jesus is interacting with. He's interacting with Mary. He's interacting with Peter and John. He is interacting with Thomas and, and the other disciples, really. But, but the question of belief, we see three people highlighted. We see Mary, we see Thomas, and we see John. And what's fascinating is that John is the only of those three that believes in the resurrection without seeing any physical, without seeing Jesus. He sees physical evidence, he sees the clothes there. Mary sees the clothes, comes to a different conclusion than John does. Thomas doesn't apparently go to the tomb at all, maybe he does and we just don't know it, but Thomas doesn't have any evidence, he just has the eyewitnesses accounts of his friends, and he says, I, I don't believe until I see him, and when he sees him, he, he recognizes he, he shouldn't have asked, <laughs> shouldn't have asked to, to touch the, the hands and, and to touch the side, and he recognizes that. But Jesus makes a powerful point to John that we have to come back to now at this point this week. 
Mary believed because Jesus spoke one word to her. John believed without seeing. Thomas believed because Jesus showed up right in front of his face. And the call that Jesus gives, having, told all, having, having done all of this stuff in, in those few days, the conclusion that Jesus comes to in that upper room with the disciples is you guys have had a great opportunity, you disciples. And this includes the women and the men. You've got to see, you've got to believe in what you see. But what John is giving us is the paradigm for what would happen for the rest of human history. How much more blessed it is for those that do not get to see the physical form of the resurrected Jesus, have no opportunity to touch the hands, to touch the side, don't have Jesus call out to them in a garden, marry and call them by name, and yet believe anyway. There is such power in Jesus and his resurrection and the eyewitness accounts of those people that now it ripples out to all of us 2,000 years later. But I think about that place. This is why I started this way. Think about what it would be like to be Mary going on this hike out of town, up the hill, to the garden, early in the morning, before the sun was up. She came to this tomb. We don't know, by the way, exactly where, where the tomb is or anything, but she comes to the tomb, and he's gone. She comes back to the tomb, and he's still gone. And then she sees a man in this that she thinks is a gardener. She thinks he's tending the plants and the, the flowers and making sure that this burial place for this family, remember this is Joseph of Arimathea's family plot, so to speak. Whoever is working the ground to make sure it's beautiful and preserved and protected, that's who she thinks it is, but it's Jesus. And that, that was a sacred place for all of human history. And I think it's, it's interesting if you go to Israel, there's, there's two different locations you can visit that claim to perhaps be the tomb, and probably neither one of them are actually the tomb of Jesus. We don't actually know, and I think it's a good thing that we don't actually know. Because it is a sacred place, there is power in that place. But it's not about the place. The story I gave you at the beginning, I think there's power and beauty when you associate a place with a movement of God. That when, when you've moved from a place of hope, or a place of despair, to hope, you're going to remember everything about that setting. It's going to be powerful. It's going to connect with you. And you're going to always want to go back there. Always want to go back to that point I moved from despair to hope. But it's not about the place. It's about who shows up in the place. It's about Jesus. And so here's, here's our call for today. We're, we're going to move into a sacred moment and a sacred place at the Lord's table. But it's, it's not about the place. It's about who's coming. It's about who's here. If you are stuck in despair and you are in need of transforming hope, there's a, there's a paradigm here. And it's really simple. Get up. Leave, leave, leave the room and go. That's what Mary does, right? She goes. She gets up and she goes to the tomb. She looks in. She looks around. She goes searching. She, she gets out of her despair enough to get up and go. She listens to the voice of God. That's, that's all it is. 
Get up, look around, listen. And some of us this morning are still in that place of despair that we're in need of transforming hope. Because life is hard, and life is full of despairing occasions, despairing events. But the gospel is true, and Jesus brings hope. But everyone in this room is either in need of transforming hope or called as an agent of transforming hope. Because if you have received what what this table represents for us, that Jesus' body was broken for you and Jesus' blood was shed for you, then what the scripture says is that even in the most despairing of situations, we can have hope. Even when a loved one dies, we can have hope, according to to Paul to the Thessalonians. He says, we'll grieve, it will hurt, we'll have pain, but we won't have grief like those who have no hope. We we grieve in hope that we'll be reunited to that person, and more importantly, we'll be in the presence of God forever. Paul says to the church in Corinth, by the way, if this is not true, and if Jesus is not raised, we got nothing. We have no hope. In fact, we are among the people to be most pitied in the world because we've staked everything on this. And so I'm going to go ahead and invite the band and those that are serving to join me up here. And I I want the rest of you to just hear me out for a minute. This is a table, a sacred place, a sacred table where the hopeless find hope where those that are distant commune with the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit in one moment, where we eat of the broken body of the Son and we drink of the shed blood of the Son, and those who were in darkness are brought into a kingdom of marvelous light. I really love experiencing God looking out over the water, but this is another sacred place for me, and I want it to be a sacred place for you. When we come together and when we do this, I want you to ask yourself, Father, remind me of that time when I moved from despair to hope. And Father, remind me of all of the ways you have shaped me, you have brought me into light day after day, time after time, crisis after crisis. And God, show me, show me how to be the agent now of transforming because we all have those people that are living in darkness, don't know their way out. We know we've just got to love them. We've got to walk with them. We've got to be patient with them. And we've got to present the only way to hope is Jesus. Broken body, shed blood for sinners to receive life. If you've never received that message, I'd invite you as the guys go out and we we sing, come and, come and meet me at the front here never received Jesus today is the day to receive Jesus and let's let's move you into the kingdom of light and into the kingdom of hope this morning for the rest of you experience God commune with him as we receive his broken body and shed blood what we'll do the way we'll do the service here is these guys they're going to come and they're going to bring you the bread first I want you to hold it and then they'll come back I'll give them the juice they'll, they'll bring you the juice and hold both you can stand and sing with the song you can come to the altar to